Despite all efforts, the number of infections keeps rising, with nearly 3,000 new cases reported in the past 24 hours. Over the weekend, a Boston student tested positive. He returned from Wuhan just one day before Logan Airport started screening for the virus. <coughs> this is How To, and I'm Charles Duhigg. As you might be able to hear, I'm a little sick at the moment, which, given the headlines right now, got me thinking about an episode we did last year called How to Survive a Pandemic. At the time that we recorded that, the threat of a pandemic was mostly hypothetical. But now? Across China tonight, empty streets and cities on alert. The deadly coronavirus outbreak is spreading faster, raising new concerns all around the globe. Parents are now being told not to take their children to school. sold out of masks by 10 o'clock this morning. People, People lined are even up standing behind. guard to keep outsiders from coming in. The new coronavirus outbreak that began in central China is causing a lot of panic. And that's in part because of how fast it's spreading. The World Health Organization has declared it a global health emergency. And most experts say it looks increasingly like a pandemic. Of the almost 20,000 people who are now infected, over 360 of them have died, which is pretty scary. But what's also frightening is how panic can go viral online so easily. Hello? Hey, can you hear me? Yes, this should be A few nights ago, I reached out to Jordan Schneider and Athena Sao, some friends of friends who live in Beijing. You're seeing these videos coming out of Wuhan of these nurses breaking down, crying, saying, like, the world is ending, like, we can't do this anymore. You know, there are really scary photos of just, like, bodies lying in hallways um, and uh, sort of medical services being completely overwhelmed. Yeah, I'd say, like, the virus itself does not seem to be so deadly. But the fact that the Chinese hospitals are, sh are short on medical supplies and um, availabilities, that's really scary. Jordan and Athena say Beijing is hardly recognizable right now. There was a viral video that went around, someone walking down on one of the main thoroughfares in Beijing, and there were just no cars, which is pretty surreal for a national capital that has 20 million people in it. Most of the restaurants are closed, all the gyms are closed, um, offices. Um, people are either working from home or not going into the office or just work has been canceled. Jordan and Athena left Beijing and are actually in Malaysia at a hotel with a bunch of other Chinese citizens. But the fear and suspicion of those who might have the virus is still very present. For the past few days, we were staying at a hotel in Malaysia where every single guest was from China. Uh, Fifteen of them were from Wuhan. And the whole time, like the whole talk of the, of, the, of the guests at this hotel was, you know, what's up with those Wuhan people? Um, we can tell them by their accent. We should stay away, not sit next to them. There was an open buffet and people were sort of worried about eating in the same place as the, as the Wuhan guests. So I think this is certainly something that is making people uh, more suspicious of, of others. There's a lot we still don't know about the coronavirus, and there's also a lot of misinformation out there. Maybe your mom keeps calling worried about you, or, or you've heard that someone in your city has been infected, and you're wondering, what should you do right now? What, what can you do to stay safe? Today, we're going to debunk a few myths and give you some real tips to protect yourself and your family. After this quick break, we'll talk to a doctor who lived in China during the 2003 SARS outbreak and who can tell you what you need to know in order to stay safe. Don't go anywhere.
This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. How does it start? Like, what's the what are the early warning signs that something's going on? Well, in China, the early warning signs tend to be rumors, right? Because there's not a a vibrant um, independent press. So you hear that there's a new disease circulating. You hear that people are dying. And that's what makes it scary. And then you have to kind of roll back and figure out, well, how is this spreading and how lethal is it really? This is Elizabeth Rosenthal, a doctor who covered the SARS outbreak in China over a decade ago for The New York Times. She's written books about healthcare, and today is the editor of Kaiser Health News. You know, it, and as a journalist, it's it's really wild because you're trying to get around a country where quarantines are being imposed. And we wanted to go to the um, to the hospital where SARS patients had been kept. And so you do these trips and, you know, you have to be careful. So let me ask as a as a mom. So so as a journalist and as a doctor, you have one perspective. But you were there with your kids and your husband, right? How, how old were your kids when you were there? Uh, well, at the time of SARS, they would have been eight and ten. Okay. You know, uh, my kids were at the international school in Beijing, and I would say probably half to two thirds of the kids' families chose to to leave, the, or the whole families left. leave the country altogether. They left Beijing. Yeah. Okay. You know, there there are various reasons why people make that choice, right? One, you worry. Um, that what's going to happen is what we're seeing now, that you won't be able to get out if you wait too long. So better get out of Dodge while we still can. Yeah. Um, You know, as a physician, I felt like they were in a pretty safe space that I could control. And, and, you know, one of the high-risk areas for transmitting disease is on airplanes, right, or in airports. They're very crowded. There's recirculated air. And we had, in fact, at our school, had a mom get sick on a famous flight from Hong Kong to Beijing, where 17 people, I believe, got infected from one person who had SARS. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, those enclosed spaces can be very high risk if you have a very sick person on board, which apparently was the case in that flight. But, you know, the more information comes out and the more you understand about the virus, the less scared you get. But also, I would say, when there's too much half-baked information, then also fear and panic spreads. And one thing I have to say as I watch the reporting on the coronavirus, now that I'm not doing it, it bothers me a little bit that people are keep calling it the deadly coronavirus, because by all indications, it's not nearly as deadly as SARS. And, you know, do we say the deadly influenza virus? Well, yes, you know, people can die from a whole lot of viruses, but we really have to keep things in perspective. And um, I can tell you a world where everyone walks around with masks and is paranoid about everyone else, as was the case um, and when SARS was kind of a full-blown problem in Beijing, is really not a fun world to live in. Yeah. Um, and remind remind me how... How contagious and fatal was SARS? Well, SARS killed about 10% of people who, who were infected. Okay. So pretty high mortality rate, yeah. right? 
Um, and it killed young people as well as old people. So that's a little different than what we're seeing with the coronavirus. Most of the people who've died in the coronavirus, I don't think anyone's died outside of China. Right. And most of them have been old or had other conditions, which means they're kind of weakened yeah. anyway. We all see these photos from China of everyone wearing masks on the street. It's really hard to get any infectious disease when you're outdoors. It's in these tight, enclosed spaces that you have to worry. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, here in New York, I, I ride the subway system, and I've noticed I've seen more people with masks on. Yeah. There's almost, and I feel terrible about this, but there's almost this suspicious response to think, like, are they wearing a mask because they're sick? Right. Or are they suspicious of all the people around them, and, and they're worried that someone else is sick? So, um... I was on a plane um, at really at the height of the SARS uh, epidemic or outbreak where uh, it was mostly me and epidemiologists from the CDC. And we all started wearing our masks because we knew at that point, you know, planes were a high-risk environment. And then the beverage cart came and we were like, okay, masks off. <laughs> now I would say I probably would have kept it on if the guy next to me or the woman next to me was was coughing their brains out. Right. You know? So let me ask you, what would you guys do every day, day to day, that was different? What was the protections you guys put in place? You know, what was really important was what happened at the school for my kids. They said, you know, do not send your kid to school with any sickness at all. And then they would do this hand-washing thing, which they both probably can still sing the hand-washing song. So they, <laughs> you know, would wash their hands many, many times a day at school and that was really important. And as I, I what, what surprised me, and I've known about, you know, good sanitation and all that for years as a doctor, but during those months of SARS, no kid who stayed at that school got sick with anything. It was like a miracle, <laughs> you know, no, no stomach bugs, no, no sniffles. I mean, because everyone was really conscious of sanitary stuff. So let me ask this for, for folks who are listening who aren't in China. Mm -hmm. who are trying to put this risk, they're reading it in the paper every day about coronavirus, they're trying to put the risk in perspective, and the, the hallways of hospitals are jam-packed, right. and they have, you know, 45 cranes to try and build a hospital in 10 days to, to take care of the sick. It, it's hard to just say, I'm going to trust that things are going to be okay. How should listeners put this into context, and what should they do? Can I do the I'm a doctor thing? Yeah, please do. Please do. <laughs> okay. I'm a doctor, and... Um, you should wash your hands and not panic because you have to understand that a lot of the reactions at the center of an outbreak have nothing to do with us here, you know, 3,000 to 6,000 miles away. And some of the interventions you see going on, in fact, probably many of them, are just, you know, officials wanting to show that they're doing something. You know, you, you do what you can. And I think for those of us in the U.S. right now, just remember, you know, the flu is your problem, not the coronavirus in Wuhan. So you don't need to be panicked right now, particularly if you're living here in the United States. But coming up, a scientist will tell us what to do and more importantly, what not to do if the coronavirus outbreak takes a turn for the worse. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. 
She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast, or find it wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. This is Dr. Tom Inglesby. And I am the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. And uh, I work on trying to prevent and respond to pandemics. What, what's your favorite pandemic movie? I think the one that's probably relatively close um, to what could happen is the movie Contagion. Don't talk to anyone. Don't touch anyone. Stay away from other people. As the coronavirus started to spread, people on social media began sharing clips of the 2011 movie Contagion. And streaming services began reporting a surge in the number of people watching the movie online. It's figuring us out faster than we're figuring it out. It's mutated. It's a great movie. I don't agree with everything that happened, but I think that they thought through how a pandemic would appear in the world. You know, kind of would move from animals to people and it would slowly appear in various places. <laughs> it got the role of CDC pretty, <coughs> excuse me, uh, pretty right. Sorry, it's a little... So it's one thing for me to have a slight cough, but when you're talking to a guy who travels the world fighting infectious diseases, <laughs> coughing is not what you want to hear. We turn to Dr. Inglesby because he's been interested in this subject for a long time. I think as a kid, I, I thought about epidemics and pandemics and about what kind of systems we had in place in our country. And so it's always been a fascination of mine. One of the reasons I was really interested in talking to you was because... Um, a couple of years ago, right before um, Hurricane Sandy, I remember being in the car with my wife and they were coming on the radio and they were saying, look, a hurricane's coming. And and I turned to my wife and I was like, should we should we drive to New Jersey <laughs> like and just go check into a hotel? 
And both of us were like, no, that's crazy, right? <laughs> like, like we should clearly, they would tell us if we needed to, to flee New York. And it was kind of this moment I've thought about a lot since then, because if something really bad does happen, like how, how do I actually prepare for and survive a pandemic? Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a great question, fair question. I think some of the signs of seriousness are when healthcare workers get seriously ill or die from a disease. And that's that's something that health authorities in the United States and around the world take very seriously. It's pretty theoretical to discuss these kinds of questions when the epicenter of a pandemic is halfway across the world. But one thing that Dr. Inglesby emphasized is that even if I hear about a pandemic spreading where I live, I shouldn't head for the hills and I shouldn't panic. Rather, I should shelter in place and, and be prepared and realize that these situations develop slowly. So there's plenty of time to make good choices. It's not going to be a moment where there's no pandemic and then suddenly there's a terrible pandemic and all is lost. I think even early on in big outbreaks, there are many moments of possible interventions, and there's going to be a lot of isolating people and a lot of potential quarantine if they can identify individuals who are directly exposed. With infectious diseases, things mount slowly over time. It takes perhaps four days, seven days for someone to get symptoms from the person they were infected by. The next thing you can do in advance is to stock up on some basic necessities. Be because you probably won't need them, but it's always smart to have supplies on hand in case of an emergency. Families should have a few days' supply of water and food in their basements so that they can take care of themselves for a little while and have a plan in case you all are, your family is, if you have older people and they're moving around, have a plan on how you're going to communicate the problem with pandemics, again, is the time course is different. You know, the pandemic that 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 happened in uh, 1918, which is a long time ago, with influenza, that took, you know, a year and a half to move around the world. But what if the pandemic is raging and, and you look out the window and you see this kid who looks sick? This happens all the time in the movies, right? You're inside and your best friend is knocking on the door with his family and they, they want to get in. Should you barricade yourself inside and, and just refuse to help? Um, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, I don't think society is going to completely break down around that and become kind of tribal to the point of families taking care of each other and, you know, fighting off others. Uh, I'm not saying that as somebody who's very obviously very sick should be brought back into your home. What I would say is we should plan to do what we'd hope someone would do for our kids if there were a kid out there who looks sick, calling the ambulance wearing the right kind of mask and gloves if you can, it'd be a big mistake to not do anything because then that person mm. is going to go around and infect other people. And then it right. grows. And then the risk to your family is higher. So it's yeah. in everyone's interest to try and get sick people cared for and not walking around infecting others. You just have to find a safest, the safest possible way to do that. And you know, remember, the other thing is, if this disease sickens a third of us or half of us um, and one percent of those people die which would be a tragedy um, something along the line or two percent like 1918 the other people who recover they're immune yeah they're ready they can help people at that point so we should help people 
And the truth is, we're going to know how to do that because there's going to be lots of advice from government agencies and, and public officials about what to do and who to call if someone looks sick. And society will continue. We'll still need truck drivers to continue delivering food and cashiers to help ring things up inside grocery stores. Maybe you'll wear a mask on your way to work. But if everything changes overnight, a pandemic is actually going to be just one in a long list of problems that we're dealing with. But that brings up the final question. In the worst case scenario, how do we protect ourselves over time? Can we ever outrun something like the coronavirus? Um, I mean, pandemics are going to move around. They're going to move around the country. They're going to move around the world. That's the, the whole definition of a pandemic. Every year, a third of the world gets sick from influenza. Fortunately, it's a relatively mild illness, but that goes to all the corners of the country. It doesn't stay just in the city and then spare a rural location or a farm. One of the things that makes it hard is that when you hear about a disease like the coronavirus, there's this impulse to do something, anything, to feel like you're actively responding. And that impulse can actually be dangerous. In fact, long before this outbreak of the coronavirus, Dr. Inglesby helped organize a simulation of a global pandemic crisis for a bunch of current and former government officials to see how they would handle it. Even then, with experienced professional politicians, it did not go well. And so what that exercise did was, over a series of mock National Security Council meetings, they were presented a, a number of very difficult dilemmas and had to think through them together and make decisions about how they would respond. So for example, the discovery of cases of this new virus for which we have no vaccine uh, and which is killing people, um, we've discovered that virus in Germany and Venezuela in the story. And um, what is the proper response? Should the United States close travel and trade to those two countries to try and prevent the spread of disease into the country? And on the one hand, um, polling in past outbreaks in the United States shows that the American public strongly supports closing borders to try and prevent disease from getting in. On the other hand, we know from science and public health that closing borders never, ever has worked. And huh. the consequence of closing a border is that you interrupt the movement of scientists and people who can try and help. And if you do take that action, and then the United States gets a case, do you then risk the rest of the world saying, we will now shut you out of moving your people and goods around the world? It's a cascade. It's like a domino effect. And what's the right answer for the Germany Venezuela? I think question? the right answer is that we can do sensible screening at airports. We can isolate people early. We can crash on vaccine development, although it's still going to take us probably years. Um, but we shouldn't take what we think is kind of the politically instinctively the right move without understanding that public health and science shows that it's never helped before and it could really hurt us. We've already seen this with the coronavirus in China and other countries. And so I asked Dr. Inglesby, if so many of our first instincts are wrong, then what should we be doing? For people who are listening to the show, if they have a concern about a pandemic in the future and what would they do and will they be able to get vaccine and medicine, I think a call to their legislators to say, hey, I'm tracking this issue. I, I pay attention to this. I want you to support medicine and vaccine development and science around infectious disease to make sure we don't deal with this. 
that's a good thing. And I think, you know, people, I think, sometimes despair and say, what is my voice going to do in a world that's, you know, so chaotic and you know, politics is so broken? I do think that relatively small numbers of people calling a legislator's office makes a difference. Call your congressman. That's the... <laughs> that is one thing you can do. It's not obviously not the only thing you should do, but it could be on your list. There's still a lot we don't know about the coronavirus, but I had one more question for Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Like, let's say we're not talking about coronavirus. We're talking about virus X, and let's say it starts in the U.S., and people are looking up this podcast. Mm-hmm. What should they do to prepare? Like, what, what do you do at your home in Washington, D.C.? Um, right now, uh, nothing. Okay. You know, nothing. Um, I'm, I'm aware of what's going on in the world. I read reliable news sources. And, um, you know, if there were an outbreak epidemic, I would probably buy masks ahead of it. Not for this one, for sure. But if it was more serious, I would have some masks on hand. I would avoid, you know, public places that were enclosed. But, you know, the world is mostly filled with health, not disease. So you can make yourself a little crazy seeing, you know, the next killer virus around the corner. So keep calm and carry on. And remember to wash your hands. Thanks to Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal and Dr. Tom Inglesby for all of their great advice. Here's hoping that none of us will have to ever use any of it. And look for Dr. Rosenthal's book, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Also, thank you to Jordan Schneider and Athena Sow, who have a podcast named China Econ Talk. And finally, if you would like to know what supplies you should have on hand in case of an emergency, go online to emergency. .cdc.gov. Do you have a big question that you're trying to find the answer to? If so, send us a note at howtoitslate.com and we might be able to help. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rachel Allen is our production assistant and Merritt Jacob is our engineer. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Special thanks to Asha Saluja and Sung Park. I'm Charles Duhigg, and I'm sick. But thanks for listening.